0: Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Without a vision, the people perish, but whoever heeds instruction, happy is he. What does the word vision mean here? We can know better what it means by first stating what it does not mean. It does not mean mere image-making out of your own inner information. It does not mean forming a picture cut from the cloth of your own fleshly ideas. In this context, it means literally a revelation directly from God to your heart. The Hebrew root word, Chazah, is found in various places. Psalm 27, verse 4, where it speaks of beholding the beauty of the Lord. Here, the word implies contemplation or meditation. In Job twenty seven verse twelve it refers to a spiritual experience that was meant to make a lasting impression. In Isaiah twenty eight eighteen it refers to aligning ourselves with the object of the word of the Lord. In Psalm nineteen or excuse me, Job nineteen twenty six it means to literally behold, to gaze upon. And in Daniel chapter 4, it refers to actually foreseeing the flow of outworking events, which could include creative ideas and creative thinking. First Samuel chapter 3 verse 1, it's used to refer to the clear word of God given to a people. The word of the Lord was precious or rare in those days, and there was no open vision. The Hebrew word translated perish here, para, means to throw off restraint and wander, to become naked. In its most practical and literal definition, then, it could be transliterated, Without a clear vision of purpose sent straight from God to our hearts, we will give vent to our own wanderings. Naked and unprotected from the chaos around us, we will throw off restraint until we destroy ourselves. Then it ends the proverb with, Happy are those who heed your instructions. Or the King James Version says, Who keep the law. But as we've said repeatedly, the idea of keeping the law, in our vernacular, is far from the heart of the Hebrew text. It's much better to understand it as heeding loving parental guidance than keeping law. If we compile all the shades of meaning listed above for vision, we get something like this. To behold the Lord and receive from Him a direct word that aligns us with His purposes for our life and future. A word which imparts to us the experience needed to corral our feelings and emotions in the right direction. As we have stated over and over in this study on the imagination, you cannot do this without engaging the picture-making faculty of the mind. And there's no picture without a feeling, and no feeling without a picture. The imagination in worship and in prayer is vital for reality to engage us on all levels, and in our spirit in union with God himself, in our mind in willful engagement, and in our emotions via images and symbols of the heart, and in our bodies which become energized by the overall vision we are experiencing, then we become people who obey. To relegate this exercise in faith to be nothing more than mere imaginary self-stimulation, or worse, to call it demonic or new age, is a religious trick of the enemy to cut us off from the most powerful tool God gave us, a holy imagination. And doing this to our prayer life results in such a dry experience that it's no wonder many people seem to know little of how to persevere in prayer. Remember our quote from Oswald Chambers about this very thing? It's so important I'm going to take the time to review that passage again because It's so strongly addressing the theme of imagination related to prayer. Chambers says, One of the reasons for stultification in prayer is that there's no imagination, no power of putting ourselves deliberately before God. Imagination is the power God gave a saint to place himself out of himself and into relationships he never was in. The starvation of the imagination is one of the great reasons for exhaustion and sapping of our strength. If you have never used your imagination to put yourself before God, begin to do it now. It's no use waiting for God to come make you do it. You say, God is not talking to me right now, but he will if you remember whose you are and whom you serve. Provoke yourself in this, and your affections for God will increase tenfold. Your imagination will no, not be starved any longer." Quote. It amazes me how often people who have had far too many experiences with the unholy imagination, driving them the wrong direction, will still balk at engaging the holy imagination when praying. It is a real devilish stronghold that has been successfully ensconced in minds of too many of God's people that has them upside down on this issue, resulting in refusing the good while falling for repeated failures with the bad. If you refuse the infusion of the holy into the imagination out of some horribly misguided idea that you are, quote, protecting yourself from error, It leaves the vacuum which the enemy is all too happy to fill with the unholy, or the unloving, or any other negative. That's not to say there's no reason for some caution on the subject. Instructing folks in how to engage their imaginations in prayer can get into some difficulty. How much do we guide them before we're getting into territory that's a mixed bag? I don't want to tell anyone what They should or should not be thinking when they're praying. Yet I have to make suggestions so often to people, things like, well, when you pray for your wayward son or daughter, stop picturing them as a mess. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the true person you're interceding for. Then that vision of what can be will begin to take the place of the negatives and the fears and anxieties And what certainly is God's heart for them will take the place of your anger and frustration with them. Your prayers will be lifted up on eagle's wings. Pray out of the largeness of that vision and you'll find that you are believing for it with a much healthier faith than when you see the bad and allow your emotions to pull you down into begging God as if God is your enemy instead of your dear friend. When we pray with this vision in mind, we are cooperating with the goodness of God for good purposes instead of begging an imaginary, reluctant, distant God to please break character and come down and do something for us. But isn't that mere positive thinking or worse, trying to manipulate reality with mind power? Well, you decide. Which expresses the heart of God for your object of prayer? The vision of the good or the pain and disappointment and frustration of the bad? Which has so far been defeating and causes your prayer life to to leave you more empty and hurting than when you started praying? Which one of these images fills you with hope and love and blessing? And which one does the opposite? See, we shouldn't have to labor this point. Most folks who have been jaded against faith-filled imagination would automatically know what to choose without argument. It's only the hyper-vigilant religious legalistic spirit that has to be cajoled to do what spiritual common sense would simply understand and do. This is simply a naturally measurable fact. The mind communicates through the body what it believes for. Athletes understand this from repeated experience. Where the mind goes, the body follows for good or for ill. Even just normal joggers know if they think of giving up, the body quickly accommodates that thought in a millisecond. That's not magic. It is what we call mind over matter because it's designed to be that. So where do we get the idea that this truth that is common to all of us in everyday settings somehow goes wrong when it comes to prayer? Hebrews 11 says, Moses endured the evils of Egypt by, quote, seeing him who is invisible. David says in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me, therefore I shall not be moved. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, don't neglect the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but meditate on them. What is faith? It is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Now, if that is so, and it is, then how does the thing that is now unseen come to fruition in the visible world? Well, Hebrews 11.1, 1, as I've stated, says it is the substance of things we're hoping to see come to us. So then, what is Substance. That word is translated several different ways in various translations. The most common newer translations use the following terms. For instance, the Living Bible says faith is the confidence. New American Standard says faith is assurance. Both of these words imply a mental exercise of the left brain, not the right brain, not the heart, Faith is the title deed, the Woost translation says. Now, that's a bit closer to an invisible but very real transaction in the spirit realm in a divine courtroom. And that's not a bad idea at all. It deserves real consideration that in prayer it may be necessary to go before the throne of God and ask for a legal hearing in which you present your evidence of ownership of what you're seeking. In other words, your title deed You lay out your case based on God's promise and you demand the enemy to give up his hold on that which is not his. But still there is more to it than even title deed. But the King James Version has it right to use a word that goes beyond confidence or assurance. And I want you to keep the title deed picture in your mind because it really is helpful. But assurance and confidence are just a Shade of, of, of a much richer meaning of the word substance. So how do we end up with these other words and why is substance much better? The Greek word for substance is hypostasis. It means hypo under sub and stasis to stand or stance. So sub stance. Hupostasis means that which stands under. The thing prayed for, which provides the place for the thing prayed for to have a place to stand, have a place to be. The ground upon which we stand, the document we make our case based upon, our title deed, as Wolf's version says it, gives solid, real, irrefutable place to stand for that which then gives confidence or assurance that what you've prayed for will happen. Does Does that make sense? But if we just distill the word substance down to its parts, and only offer those parts as the whole, we obviously shortchange ourselves. Those variations are all accurate, but they are not complete, and if left to themselves, words such as confidence, or assurance, or even title deed, we're missing the whole picture. This becomes the reason for such vague, foggy, insubstantial, if I can use that word clearly now, insubstantial thinking about what faith is that then leads to empty imagination, which leads to weak faith, which leads to feckless floundering in prayer. Let's talk a little bit more about substance. Faith is the substance, is the best understood phrase. Faith is the very building block under the reality we're hoping for. When we go into the courtroom of heaven to present our case before our judge, who happens, by the way, to be our father, who who has made the promises upon which we made our case, we then can have confidence and assurance of what we're seeking. It is his power and creative ability that will back up the case, provide our title deed. But it also means the creative power of the creator, God, who will create whatever is needed, giving it substance. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, we all know, uh, says nothing is impossible with God, or a better Greek rendering, no word of God shall be devoid of power. And the idea here is that what God doesn't have already in existence, he will create for the believer who is crying out to him so it's clear that the eyes of our heart which paul refers to in ephesians 1 will be flooded with light in order that we may comprehend this refers to our seeing what it is we're praying about if we're off reality in our thinking and imagining then we are off the platform or the substance We are not on solid ground. We have no standing place. So the Holy Spirit will adjust and correct where we are off and then guide us into all truth, John 14 says. So we need not fear that we are deceiving ourselves in our vision. If we ask for a fish, he will not give us a serpent, Luke 11 tells us. But if we reject the images of the heart altogether, Out of fear, we're getting off into some kind of fanciful, uh, self-motivated ego trip or New Age error or whatever. We're automatically operating against the revelation of what faith is and are then deceived for certain because you can't obey these scriptures and have that attitude. You have to just throw these scriptures out. The eyes of the heart are logically absolutely necessary for faith to be operating, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Since in this real prayer we are not dealing in mere wishful thinking or shallow positive thinking, but we are engaging with the real God who is with us and in real things of and from God, then we can fully expect that our faith is contacting solid substance, the ground of reality. This reality, the real presence, will deal with us in real ways, producing real results. That's exactly why the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain in 11.6 that, quote, whoever comes to God must first believe that he is, in other words, must trust the real God is present to us and inviting us into relationship with himself, and, That he is also the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, that your pursuit of him will produce a change in your reality for the good based on your relationship with the God you're seeking. Now let's talk about faith and the imagination. So then where does faith manifest? It manifests, among other things, in in our imagination. It also manifests in our words We speak that which we know and testify that which we have seen. Paul says we we believe, therefore we speak in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says that though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. How? Well, the same way David, Moses, and Paul did through the holy imagination. So in prayer, where does your mind go? I mean, does it just go neutral? Does it run around in your skull like a dog that's been turned loose from its chain because it has been so undisciplined that it doesn't know what to do with itself when it has a little bit of freedom? Or does it focus along with the rest of your faculties? In his recent book, The Circle Maker, Pastor Mark Batterson writes these words, Neuroimaging has shown that as we age, the center of cognitive gravity tends to shift from the imaginative right brain to the logical left brain. Now, This neurological tendency presents a grave spiritual danger. At some point, most of us stop living out of imagination and start living out of memory. That means that instead of creating the future, we start repeating the past. Instead of living by faith, we live by logic. Instead of going after our dreams, we stagnate. As we age, either imagination will overtake memory, or memory will overtake imagination. Imagination is the road less taken, but it is the pathway of prayer. Prayer and imagination are directly proportional. The more you pray, the bigger your imagination gets because the Holy Spirit supersizes it with God-sized dreams. One litmus test of spiritual maturity is whether your dreams are getting bigger or smaller. The older you get, the more faith you should have because you have experienced more of God's faithfulness and it is God's faithfulness that increases our faith and enlarges our dreams, our heart, our imagination. End quote. Second quote. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We give thanks to God for you that your faith is growing more and more. Well, Current brain research gives us some insight into this dynamic that uh, we just quoted from Batterson's book. Dr. Antonio Damasio, De- who's the head of neurology at USC, says, quote, imageless thought is impossible. Human reasoning is always imagistic. The ability to display images internally and to order those images is the process we simply call thought. Dr. Bruce Lipton explains that the body is like a camera. All environmental signals are picked up by the lens. The camera sees something, the lens picks it up and translates it onto the film, where you then make a complementary copy. Biologically, the same thing is going on in our body, our emotions, our eyes, our imagination. Whatever is in the environment The membrane is like a lens and also picks up the image and sends that image to the nucleus where the database is stored in the cells. That's why we use the term quite often, your body remembers. Dr. Pierce Howard says, quote, unless people are blind from birth, all data is stored inside our memories as images. Dr. Rich Glenn says, quote, All data is stored in the form of images, and a disruption in the body's energy field can be traced back to a destructive image. So the converse is true also. Holy images, blessing and encouraging and strengthening biblical images, release healing energies in the body. Our point is simply that it is impossible to not picture, and the pictures are for good or ill, but they are not neutral. Therefore, the believer is clearly expected to picture what is in line with God's purposes. Faith, belief, trust, all those words we associate with relation to God demand that we imagine in line with the promises and character of God. In prayer, what could be more obviously expected by God than that we seek to visualize what we are claiming to be believing Him for? So, what about visualization and guided imagery? Well, all ditches are holes in the ground, but that does not mean that all holes in the ground are ditches, unless one is a legalist. The New Agers use visualization to That does not mean that visualization is always new age. It just means that when new agers use it, they may or may not be doing so in a correct way. Since all humans visualize and all new agers are humans, then visualization will occur among new agers. But it makes all the difference in the world how they do it, why they do it, and with what the focus is. Every storyteller is engaging in guided imagery Jesus used guided imagery every time he told a parable. Since he was not speaking to a modern Western culture cut off from its heart and living divided with head in one section and heart operating almost completely separately in another, then he didn't have to say things like, now we're going to allow our imagination to come up by telling a story. No, it's only we sick post-20th century Westerners who have to be taught Via guided imagery, also whether in guided imagery sessions under a therapist or in normal interactions with a, a an audience or a, an individual, some dark or impure images arise. Wisdom does not respond to this by exiling all imagery and shutting down the person who is suffering. The fact is that the image is telling us something real about an enemy approaching. It would be a foolish thing to shut down the suffering person about on the level of an air traffic controller responding to incoming planes by turning the radar off. We need to underscore, however, that anyone who either seeks to pray with people using guided imagery as well as any who submit to others in such prayer, need to know the answer to the following questions. Number one, what is the motive and understanding of the leader or therapist or whoever? In other words, you don't just submit yourself to anybody for this kind of thing. You have to know what they believe, what spirit they're operating in, uh, what, what their worldview is biblically. Which brings us to number two: How will they interpret for you what it is that comes up? If their if their worldview is unbiblical, or if it's a mixture of muddy mysticisms or New Ageisms or a psychobabble that is anti-Christian, they're not going to come up with very much helpful information that uh, makes any positive difference for you. And then number three. What what will they do if an image comes up that is troubling? Will they know what to do with it? Will they know how to help you know what to do with it? So unless you know the answer to those three questions, not any one of them but all three of them, then you don't submit yourself to that kind of therapy or prayer or whatever. Now we've seen well-meaning but misguided messes. For instance, I remember a lady years ago who, in seeking to lead a person through prayer for the healing of the memory of his father attacking him and his mother with a knife, told them to, quote, picture the knife as a bunch of flowers, and imagine the mood of the father as being kindly instead of murderous. Well, that's worse than useless, You can't simply change the facts of history with silly, wishful thinking. That's delusional. When the person came for help after this erroneous encounter, there was real prayer offered into the real facts of the real event. He did see the Lord in the memory and interacted with the Lord over the pain and terror of the attack and all that it caused, because Jesus was there and is with him now and is speaking to him about it. The sufferer is engaging with the invisible real, and that is bringing about the needed healing changes in his emotions and his point of view and his overall life. To deny him access to the true imagination in prayer because there was a false attempt is obviously painfully misguided. Now, let me tell you my own first experience with Guided Imagery in Healing Prayer. The first time I experienced it was at a healing conference many years ago. Cut off from my own heart, full of theological and phys- philosophical prejudices against what I considered, quote, a weird head trip. Still, I only reluctantly cooperated. We were asked to use our imaginations to go on a treasure hunt down a brightly lit walking path leading to a shallow but clear and beautiful pool of water at the bottom of that pool was a treasure chest we were then directed to get in the water reach for the chest and bring it up from the water seat ourselves beside the chest and open the lid i did this the best i could thinking the whole time well what do you think might be in a treasure chest? It's like who's buried in Grant's tomb? Maybe treasure? That's what my left brain said. That would be the logical answer, but when I opened my lid, I could immediately feel the visceral, gut-level transformation going on in my body chemistry from the head to foot, negative emotions going off in me like firecrackers, as I saw in my mind's eye what was shoved into my consciousness from my right brain. My box was full of bloody bones with rotted flesh hanging on them. Now this led to a long-term dealing of the Lord with me over a deeply ensconced root of self-hatred that I was nearly oblivious to on any conscious level, but which was eating out the center of my own development on many levels in my life. And this this went on for quite some time, months actually, because I was so self-protective of certain aspects of it that were too painful to look at. James tells us one spark can kindle a huge fire, and one picture can speak a thousand words of needed truth that also kindles a great fire. Then there was another exercise that was used in those days called the garden of the heart. Another commonly used tool to get at hidden root issues, especially related to fear. In this format, folks are asked to go out into the garden in whatever form that garden may take and look to see any unsightly or unwelcome weeds growing, to then name what those weeds are and pull them up and give them to the Lord. I've seen many otherwise happy and seemingly stable people, men and women, suddenly find themselves struggling with what appears in their mind's eye to be a huge, deeply rooted weed of fear, one that was so warped and woofed into the fabric of their psyches that they needed help from prayer team members to help pull the thing up, name it, and cast it before the cross." Now, These kinds of engagements in healing prayer can be life-transforming on a dramatic level. They can even save folks from deeply troubling formations of mental illness. Let me give one more example, this one dealing with the imagination and the presence of the demonic. I was speaking one evening in a large southern city at a messianic synagogue, on this very subject of the healing of the the imagination in prayer and on how to use the holy imagination when praying. I was tired and hoping to slip out after the service when I saw a very tall young man of about 20 walking towards me, looking very troubled. Over his head I saw in my mind's eye a stack of what I knew was pornography magazines. Under this stack was a coiled rattlesnake, He asked me to pray with him for deliverance. I had him renounce the sin of idolatry and lust, which he did, and then led him to pull the unclean images out of his head using his hand to literally pull them out of his forehead one by one, as we have discussed before in this study. I knew clearly that when he got to the end of the stack, the stack that I was seeing in my mind's eye, that the serpent would be uncovered, and the demon would act out. Sure enough, as he reached what I discerned to be the last of the stack, a scream erupted from him, and he fell over like a tree. But it was supernaturally easy to handle him, as if angels were helping me. I'm sure they were. We guided him to the floor and continued to pray with him until he recovered. Now, these are real issues going on in the radar screen of the mind the holy imagination, or in his case, the unholy imagination, was confronted by the Holy Spirit to bring about the holy imagination in him from that night forward. If that's what he chose, and I believe it is what he chose, he left in peace and relief from the burden of living two opposite lifestyles at once, a thing impossible to carry on for very long without something collapsing inside of us. Now, I want to spend the the last few moments we have together talking about praying for the people and issues in your own life and learning to let your mind and your imagination participate in that activity. You do understand. I'm not saying the only aspect of prayer is imagination in the sense that you conjure up the picture of what you want uh, and you send it to God like a... uh, forwarded email, and God's supposed to pick up the order and fulfill it. Of course not. That's as silly as the opposite end of the spectrum is silly to think that there is no picture-making activity whatsoever involved in real prayer. It can become daunting when we try to graph how prayer works as if it is an electrical power grid we can chart. God's not responsive to being treated like a power plant, we tap into according to a schematic. He's not a genie who performs as long as we rub his bottle correctly. Faith is not faceless, mindless force we learn to tap into by practicing the right meditative skills. It's an insult to most of this audience to say the things I'm saying right now, because most of you are far, far beyond ever falling for such claptrap as that. But sometimes these messages go to folks who don't have a long listening history and don't have a solid biblical background. So let's be clear that our Lord is the living God, the only God. We access him by faith in him, which is relational, a relationship made available by the shedding of his blood on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. Having said that, Is there no place for understanding at least some principles of how faith works that will both honor our relational position in love while at the same time helps us move more into practical application in prayer? The imagination seems to me to be like a magnifying glass. The light of the sun fills the sky. When a magnifying glass is aligned properly with the source of the light, it concentrates its power into a beam that can be imposed like a ray gun onto a certain spot resulting in a flame. If that picture is not helpful to you, then lay it aside. It does help me, because the Bible tells us that God is light, that light penetrates the darkness and the darkness cannot put it out, that the life of God is the light of men The scripture goes on to say, for instance, in places like Proverbs chapter 20, that the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, or the lampstand of the Lord, lighting up all the inward darkened parts of our inner being. And scripture also says in the Psalms that the entrance of God's word brings light. So when the word of the Lord comes into me and lights up my inner being, that's why Paul was able to pray in Ephesians one. I pray that your whole body will be flooded with light, that you will be over overflowing with revelation from God. If if that overflowing revelation affects everything but the one part of me that most con- controls my emotions, appetites, desires, and behaviors, then it's a pretty useless idea altogether. When God spoke the light into action in Genesis chapter one, it was obviously not merely sunlight, but the light force which permeates our entire physical universe. Scientists affirm what Scripture already has told us, that everything is energized by that light. So when scientists or New Agers or Christians or anybody speaks of the energies that operate in the universe, they may have different interpretations of what they are referring to, but the same basic truth is in every person's Statement that creation is energized by the life of God, which is light. It is just simply silly to have knee jerk reactions over the reference to the word energy. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, that life giving light goes out to all living things as a blessing of love and goodness. So when I pray for others or for myself, I often picture that holy light coming through my prayers as life-giving, holiness-affirming goodness. Most of our spiritual ancestors would find me having to spell this out as a bit strange, that I'm just speaking the obvious, but forgive me if I seem to condescend. I, I do not do so for any sense of superiority, but from the awareness of how I and most folks I know don't have a grasp of these things. So I have to preach to myself sometimes just to keep myself from falling under the trap of rejecting the revelation of uh, how we are conduits of that same energy, that same healing power, that same grace, that same revelation. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Then without batting an eye, he turned to us and said, you are the light of the world. That statement in itself should settle a lot of this question about how we should pray. You know, the disciples didn't go around falling on their knees asking Jesus to come and heal and bless people. He had told them to go and heal and bless people. And so that's what they did in his name. When Peter and John come to the beautiful gate, you don't see them falling on their knees and praying a prayer over the man who was lying there, crippled, asking God to come heal him. I know that that sounds like I'm speaking blasphemy. That's because we have blasphemed about changing the scriptures to fit our unbelieving theology. No, they said silver and gold we don't have. But what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And he did. So in praying for people, Especially in interceding for people who are not present with you, for your loved ones, for your enemies, for people who you have no personal contact with, or concerning anything. What goes on in your mind when you're praying? How do you perceive what you're praying about? How do you picture it? You know, if you, uh, if you picture, I said it, I've said this already, but it's such a common example that I, I want to refer to it again. How many of us, when praying for our children, for instance, get a picture in our mind of their frustrating or rebellious or disappointing or heartbreaking behavior, and then we pray with that image in our mind, what we're actually doing is praying the problem. What we need to do is stay before the Lord with that picture in our mind, asking the Holy Spirit to adjust it to line up with God's intention and purpose. Well, what's God's intention and purpose? Obviously, to deliver them from the power of darkness and translate them into the kingdom of His dear Son, to, to deliver them from evil and bring them into purity, to, uh, to wash them in His blood, fill them with His Spirit, and make them into their true self that he originally intended them to be. So as you sit before the Lord and you lift these things up, you you begin to receive the picture that's on God's heart. See, this is the entrance of God's word bringing you light. Then in his light we see light, Psalm 111 says, And then in the light that we see, we pray out of that vision that we're seeing in the light of God. And we begin to call out to God what God's heart is for that situation. This is why 1 John chapter 5 says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, then we know we have the petition that we've asked. So then we begin to give God thanks and praise for the power that is being released through us as a conduit, as a electric wire. The power of God flows through us into the situation. Now, I've said this before in other settings, but it needs to be repeated again here. Do you understand? Surely you do that this shows us that prayer is not us trying to get God to do something he's reluctant to do, nor is prayer informing God of something he doesn't know. God wants to manifest his kingdom power through his people. So I'm in, I'm setting myself in agreement with God in the prayer, and re- that's what releases the power of God. so well, God's God. He can do it without you. I know he can do it without me, but guess what? He has chosen not to do it without me. God could save the whole world without us, but duh, He doesn't. God could raise my children without me, but you know what? He didn't. He uh, required me and Mary to be present, and uh, I could go. I mean, I, again, I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence with this, but it just um, it's, there's just such a weird religious goofiness that comes into these subjects sometimes. It just turns us into turnips. Uh, instead of thinking clearly and biblically and creatively and with joy and energy and hope, and I mean biblical hope, which is a guaranteed future, not an I hope so hope, that, uh, you know, we see the power of God being released. We see transformations coming. You know, we walk around our Jericho and, and at the time appointed, we speak the word of the Lord and God's power brings the wall down. See, what are, you, what are you walking around? What are you encircling in prayer? What are you envisioning God to do? I'm envisioning and encircling uh, lots of things right now. Individual issues, personal issues, issues concerning people I've been interceding for, praying for. When I go in to intercede for someone, I do it with the utmost carefulness and seriousness and confidence that because I am praying, evil that would have happened won't happen. Evil that has happened is going to be transformed by God's intervening grace into something turned for their good and God's glory. And lots of good that hasn't happened is going to begin to happen. And as a result of that, I really want to go pray more than I want to go do a lot of other things. Whereas there was a time in my life when prayer was, you know, it was just painful because all I ended up doing was talking to God. Well, talking to myself in God's presence about all the things I'm upset about. And, uh, you know, there's no light traveling into me, no, no power flowing from me, no transforming presence uh, reaching into any situation and bringing transformation it was just a circular downward uh depressing thing kind of like toilet water around the bowl and down the hole british people don't understand it when i say that cuz their their toilets don't work that way but anyway uh i don't i don't pray that way anymore uh haven't prayed that way for many years though I used to fall back into it now and then just from the habit of not thinking biblically. So that's why I've continued to wash my mind in the word of God and, uh, bathe myself in the presence of God until it's not only no longer, uh, a temptation to, to go into that kind of dark, negative place, but I would have to almost force myself to go there, uh, rather than, than just automatically go there, which is what I used to do. Well, I hope after these many sessions on the imagination, and this most, to me, maybe the most important one, prayer in the imagination, that you'll take these truths and begin to practically move them into action. Why don't we stop and pray right now for that to, to be true. Father, I thank you, Lord, that the entrance of your word brings light. I thank you, Lord, that our spirits are your candlestick. Our spirits are your lampstand. And when your word comes into us, it lights us. And then in your light, we see light. And as we see that light, we're then able to be energized by it because Paul prayed you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that the eyes of our heart would be flooded with light. And then, Father, out of that light, we would express ourselves into the darkness because our wrestling match is not with flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. But, Father, if, if the light in us is your light, your word says that the the light was the life the life was the light of men and it shone into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it and your word says that just as you were the light of the world now we are the light of the world because your light flows through us to the world and as we are as you were so are we now in this present world and so father in line with all those promises and many others that I didn't mention I'm asking you, Lord, to flood us with light and then let that light become the power that lightens our prayers, our intercessions, our uh, petitions, our presence in the world. So, Father, that we would begin to to grow in a sense of boldness about who we are in Christ and what we are called to do in the world around us so that we actually do become the light of the world that we do penetrate the darkness, that we don't do it with a drop of self-righteousness or or arrogance, but on the contrary, real humility, which childlike uh, trust would be manifested uh, in us, that, that we would take you at your word, that your power is available to us and through us to penetrate the darkness around us. We pray, Father, that our prayer life would become the most important moment of our day. Not in some ritual, Lord, but in in just the the breathing in and breathing out of your presence, and that we we would just become people who do what you said in your word, that we would pray without ceasing. In the few minutes that we have left together, we ask that your Holy Spirit would walk with us to our own issues that we may have not borne before you up till now i pray father for anyone listening to the sound of my voice that needs to invite you in that we do it right now father show us any unhealed issues in our minds in our hearts in our memories in our relationships Now, if you're willing to let the Holy Spirit do this with you, why don't you just lay aside whatever you're doing, unless you're driving. And even if you're driving, you can let the Lord walk with you through some of this. Just don't close your eyes. (laughs) And let me just suggest to you, you can take some of those exercises, like the two that I mentioned, uh, the Garden of the Heart. Or you just ask the Holy Spirit to show you your heart as a garden and you just walk out in it and see if there's any weeds growing there and pull them out, name them ask the Lord to show you what they are, name them and pull them out and give them to the Lord, see what the Lord does with them see what the Lord says to you about them or the treasure chest of of the the heart. You go down to that shallow pool of water, pull out the treasure chest, and get yourself situated out of the water and uh, comfortable, and then open it up and see what's in there. Now you know if you're a person like me with a Highland Scottish background, and or or Germanic, or Certain strata of British, uh, there's a tendency in all of those uh, nationalities to be a little willfully left left brain. And uh, on the other hand, if you're Israeli, Irish, or Italian, it can just you open, you open the treasure chest and the whole universe can pop out of it. Uh, and that may not always be true. You know, but I've just found as a general rule of thumb that it's true. But the Holy Spirit can help you transcend that. You don't have to be stuck in that. Whether you're German or Scottish or. If you have a tendency toward introspection, you'll fall in the treasure chest. <laughs> or the pool. And not even be able to find your way out of it. So you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you with this. Sometimes people will go on their little path toward the pool of water and uh, never get to the pool. They'll go like uh, they'll go off, you know, I remember one lady. She was supposed to be going with us to the pool and when people were telling us what they'd experienced, she raised her hand and said, "Well, I never got to the pool. I went off. I saw the road to my grandfather's farm." And uh, that's where I went. I've just been there playing. And that opened up, in conversation with her, a whole nother layer of issues in her life that she thought she was just kind of lollygagging back at her grandfather's farm. But it turned out there was deep, unhealed grief over her grandfather's death that she had not let herself even feel several years had gone by since he had passed and she was still holding off that grief. There's never a picture without a feeling and there's never a feeling without a picture. And quite often when we think pictures don't mean anything, uh, that's the very thing that the Holy Spirit will uh, put his finger on. I had a conversation this morning with uh, someone very close to me who was in prayer about Issue in his life, and he saw him. He saw M and M's dancing through his head with uh, three legs and three arms. I don't remember what all it was. Three, three, three arms on both sides and two legs. It was that same, you know, little M and M's guy that's on television. And uh, he thought, "This is too stupid. This doesn't mean a thing." But he had the wisdom to know that when he was praying and he saw this ridiculous M&M's thing going through his head, that wasn't the Lord trying to talk to him through an M&M. It was his own heart using the M&M man as a symbol of something in his heart that he didn't know how to deal with. When he prayed and asked the Holy Spirit's help with it, up comes the interpretation that had to do with a Relation something related to his mother. I won't go into all the details because it was very private to him. But it when he quit kicking against it and thinking it was just some kind of stupid leftover from watching television or something, then he began to listen to God and God began to speak to him about his own childhood and uh, some issues of unforgiveness in his heart toward his mother and, and toward issues of the early days of his life before he hit puberty. So, as we just continue to wait before the Lord in these closing moments that we have here together, after you turn your recording off, stay in the spirit. Learn learn to enter into this level of prayer and listening and childlikeness And stay there until you press through whatever the Lord's trying to show you. Father, we we thank you that nothing is of no value to you. Everything in us, everything about us, is precious to you. That's why you came to save us, all of us, spirit, soul, and body. So I just ask you, Lord, to please Help every one of us who's listening together, listening to you, not listening to this tape, but listening to you. Lord, just meet us in the parts of our hearts that we're not in touch with or parts of our hearts that we've been in touch with but we got upset for whatever reason and shut it down. Bring up any fears, any unforgiveness, Any impure memory or fantasy life that we've allowed to become a cancer in our imagination that's stealing life like a parasite. Lord, any scenario that we've allowed to play out in our minds that is is a tragedy. We're trying to get ourselves ready for the worst. And so we allow the worst to parade itself through our imagination. Lord, that's not the way you called us to live. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, virtuous, worthy of praise, that's what you told us to think on. We shall be kept in perfect peace whose imagination is stayed on you. I just pray right now, Father, for any person listening whose mind has been assailed by images of impending danger or darkness or loss that has produced fear, that has produced anxiety. I pray, Father, any anxiety that's on a low level in people, uh, like a pilot light, it's just always there. I pray you'll begin to bring up the root of that, the reason for it. Bring it up into the imagination. Or, or bring it up in dreams. Bring it up in whatever way is necessary so that it can be brought into the light and healed. Now, Father, I pray for those who have an ongo- have had an ongoing, impure life in the imagination, maybe from years back or maybe it's still current. And they need to pull these Unclean images out. Not these are not memories of actual sin, with people, but they are pictures, pornographic images, or pictures or things of that nature. Uh, when you pray for actual memories, you have to pray differently. But just cleaning out the the files in the in the brain. Uh, any picture that comes up now, you just childlike reach up with your fingers. Grab that picture, pull it out of your head, and hand it to the Lord. Just tell him, I don't want this. I don't want it in me anymore. Then watch to see what he does with those pictures. Now you just carry on with this till the Lord's through with you.